We turn to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 2. Second Kings 2, it came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, which is, of course, a tornado, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal, and Elijah said unto Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee. The Lord hath sent me to Bethel, and Elisha said unto him, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they went down to Bethel, and the sons of the prophets that were at Bethel came forth to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he said, I know it. Hold ye your peace. And Elijah said unto him, Elisha, tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Jericho. And he said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets that were at Jericho came to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he answered, Yes, yea, I know it. Hold ye your peace. And Elijah said unto him, Terry, I pray thee here, for the Lord hath sent me to Jordan. And he said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And they too went on. And fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood to view afar off, and they too stood by Jordan. Now understand that there were schools of prophets, that's what they called them. That does not mean that they were being trained to prophesy from the sense of foretelling the future. But these were schools that the Lord had preserved in northern Israel, where there were men who had scrolls of God's word yet preserved, And they were teaching these young men God's word so that the laws of Moses and and so on, that they could keep that truth alive in northern Israel. These young men would go forth and speak to the people of the village to instruct them in God's word, the law, and what they had also of of the history of God's doing up to that time. Probably some psalms as well. So sons of prophets in the sense of knowing God's word and instructed in God's word. Verse 8, And Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither, so that they too went over on dry ground. It came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, Let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And he said, Thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. It came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And now begins our text of hold the context applies. And Elisha sought and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. He took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? When he also had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elisha went over. And when the sons of the prophets, which were to view at Jericho, saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. And they said unto him, Behold, now there be with thy servants fifty strong men. Let them go, we pray thee, and seek thy master, lest peradventure the Spirit of the Lord hath taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, Ye shall not sin. When they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Sin. And they sent therefore fifty men, and they sought three days, but found him not. And when they came again to him, for he tarried at Jericho, he said unto them, Did I not say unto you, Go not? Thus far the reading of the passage and the focus of our attention in verses 12 
through 15. The year of our Lord, 2023, is not the first time I preached this passage. I preached it some 30 years ago to faith congregation. The Sunday following the death and burial of a mother of seven children, Mrs. Linda Van Overloop, ages 18 down to three. And we turn to this passage on the Sunday following that death due to a blood clot following a surgery. Turn to this passage in our bewilderment and grief and considered this cry and God's word that we can draw from this passage. The Lord God is a merciful God. But sometimes his mercies are well disguised. And one says, if this is mercy, Lord, spare us the wrath and the indignation. I turned again to this passage because this past fall, Linda Van Overloop's husband, Jim Van Overloop, known to some of you, I'm sure, passed away as well. And when that occurred, this passage came to mind because I had a classical appointment at Faith Congregation just a little ways down the road on the first day of the new year, January 1, which happened, of course, to be a Sunday as well. And I turned the congregation to this passage again. Not the same sermon, but a similar sermon. And I've been preaching it here and there since that time because of the losses that we have experienced. And I don't simply refer to the losses of death, though that too. I lost a brother taken to glory Brother Jim, who worshiped here from time to time, married to a daughter of the congregation, Gladys Nee Hoekstra, and it was a sore loss because of his faith and our oneness of mind. But I don't turn to this passage simply in light of the deaths that have occurred, and so many of you also have experienced sometimes in very painful ways and mercies, as I have said, that are so seemingly well disguised, but other losses as well as a denomination, the loss of ministers, some leaving us, another by deposition, another by resignation, and vacant churches, and who, Lord, can replace them? But the controversy itself that we have just passed through dividing families and on holidays and family events, places empty that used to have those whom we consider to be our friends and family sitting there, and now division and loss. So we turn to this passage with that in mind. Turning to Jehovah God, who alone upon whom we need, but not only need, beloved, on whom we can rely, the one who is our hope. Significant, you know, when Elijah went to heaven, 
Elisha cried, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. But he represented Jehovah God, our father, our father, who is the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. A father to be trusted, a father who is steadfast and who hears and answers cries the love that come from the heart in times of grief and devastation when things seem ever so bleak and why go forward because this God is our God as the passage and the context will make plain and he will be our guide even to death and death and in the end beloved makes us more than conquerors so with that in mind where is the Lord God of Elijah I must admit that when I preached this sermon the Sunday following the death of a mother of seven I added a word where is now the Lord God of Elijah. The occasion for the cry, the God to whom Elisha cried, and Jehovah's marvelous answer, and I could say answers, as we'll point out in that last point. Where is the Lord God of Elijah, that's a bold cry, beloved. That's a cry from the heart. I say it's a bold cry. It's even a challenging cry. And I mean from this point of view that Elisha is here saying to the Lord God, if thou art Jehovah God, notice Jehovah in the King James L-O-R-D in large letters. That's Jehovah. If thou art indeed Jehovah, as you claim to be, as you have revealed yourself to be, the I am that I am changeless not only in thy being, as it were, but in thy word and in thy promises, then show thyself as such now in the time of our need, that thou art indeed a God who is faithful and keeps his word. That's a bold cry. But it's a cry that takes Jehovah God at his own word. Because Jehovah, thou hast claimed, thou art a faithful God. And thou wilt not forsake thy people in their need. And look upon us in mercy and not simply according to our sins and say, I've had enough. I put up with you long enough and I'm done with you. And this is the token of my being completed with you and casting you aside. Not that, Jehovah God, we prevail upon thee like Jacob holding the knees of the angel, holding thee to thine own word taking thee at thy word. Prove, demonstrate, Jehovah God, thou art that God whom you have revealed yourself, declared thyself to be. The occasion for this bold cry, of course, is the manner in which Elijah was taken to heaven in no ordinary manner, of course how he passed from the earthly and the physical into the heavenly and the spiritual. Rather, we would say, an extraordinary departure, taking bodily alive, lifted up from this earth and carried to the heavens, vanishing from Elisha's sight as he looked as best he could up into that whirlwind, that tornado with the chariot, and the horses as it was taking him bodily 
from one realm into the other, and he vanishes from Elisha's sight in spectacular, dramatic fashion. That's, of course, the occasion. We can call it Elijah's ascension. And he goes from this realm into the heavenly and the spiritual, if you will, in a blink of an eye. That he was taken bodily into heaven, of course, is underscored by the scriptures in a couple of ways. The first by the context itself, because you have those 50 sons of the prophets who have stood on the one side of the Jordan, and they see Elijah and Elisha passing over Jordan and then going out into what we might call a kind of a wilderness and kind of disappearing over the horizon away from their sight. And as they continue to watch, they see the funnel cloud come from the the heavens and the dust, and they must have seen flashes of lightning and maybe even the rumble of of thunder because there's a chariot there, of course, and there's the, the horses that are radiating with a, with a light, and they see the funnel cloud as it sweeps across along the ground, and then it vanishes up into the sky, and it's gone. And they wonder as they look down that line of vision whether both Elijah and Elisha have been swept aside and carried away by that funnel and deposited someplace broken and dead. And they wait. And in time, here comes a figure back, just one figure. Who is it? And they discern in time, it's not Elijah, it's just Elisha coming by his lonesome. And where is Elijah? They ask him, of course, when at least last they talked to him as he has crossed over the Jordan himself. Where is Elijah? Well, he was carried up by that funnel cloud in the whirlwind, and he's gone, he's He's in heaven, and they question that. They are skeptical that he actually went from one realm into another realm. Quite likely, Elisha, that your your friend, this prophet Elijah, was carried by that funnel cloud and then deposited, cast on the ground, and maybe he lies broken, broken on some rock or some plain. We should look for him. Then he he descends, of course, in time they prevail, and they go look for him. What's interesting is the passage may explain it's just that one fellow who finally in curiosity goes look for a day but there's 50 of them and they don't spend just one day they spend three days scouring the area and they verify to themselves there is no body to be found indeed he has vanished and it must be as Elisha said he has gone from the earthly to the heavenly realm the spiritual also validated as you know in the New Testament Validated on the Mount of Transfiguration, which our children could tell you the story, I think. Two men appear as Christ approaches the time of his crucifixion and the agony of that crucifixion and becoming the very object of God's wrath and indignation that he might have mercy on us. And he is filled with a foreboding and The Lord God sends Moses, does he not, to the Mount of Transfiguration as three of the disciples saw him and knew it was Moses as he represents the law and the sacrifices of the law which could not make the atonement and another must come and it must be you, my Lord Jesus, who gives yourself if there's going to be redemption for God's Israel. But there's another there and that's Elijah, of course. Moses was taken bodily into heaven after he died. Read Jude verse 7 as the Satan and the archangel Michael contested for the body as it lays there in a cave. And Michael has the authority and he carries the body into heaven and there it is resurrected before the eyes of the, of the saints as a promise of things to come. Bodily in heaven as well and Elijah as well on the Mount of Transfiguration validated this ascension of Elijah in a bodily way. And that becomes, of course, the occasion for the words of Elisha as he's been taken in a spectacular fashion that not even the ascension of Christ Jesus matches in outward drama 
and in splendor. Christ Jesus, of course, simply floated up into the air. And as the disciples watch him simply float up into the air, suddenly there's clouds and he vanishes from their sight and they know, according to the very words of the angels next to them, that he is now in the heavenly and the spiritual to go to the right hand of God and be your advocate and so on. Whereas with Elijah, he went up with a roar, the roar of a, of a tornado and the lightning flashing and the, rum, and the thunders rumbling in a splendid, splendid way, spectacular, that surpasses even the ascension of Christ Jesus for its grandeur and its outward display. Well, that becomes, as we said, the occasion for this cry of Elijah, of Elisha, which in some ways is rather surprising when you simply read it and think about it. He has seen the one whom he loves taken into heaven, doesn't even have to die, but alive, vanishes from this realm into the other realm, and now the trials and the troubles are done. Sin no more. Isn't that reason for joy, for gladness, for thanksgiving? That's not how we talk about he doesn't have to deal with the trials and the, and the tests and the troubles anymore. And sin shall be no more. And here's a fellow now whose life had been sought by Ahab and Jezebel. And he was done with that as well. He was safe and secure in heaven with his Lord. Happy day. Let's rejoice. Is that how it always is? Our loved one is taken. He's in heaven. She's in heaven. Happy day. Let's rejoice. Why the tears? Why the sadness? Why the grief? Why so overwhelmed, if you will? And that was Elisha. Striking, you know. He doesn't immediately begin to sing the hallelujah chorus. We read he rips his clothes. He feels ripped in half. It's a wound to the heart. And when he says, where now is the Lord God of Elijah, it's an aspect of that, of that grief too, but especially the ripping of the clothes, feeling ripped in half so that it's, I'm only half a man, if you will, and I have the wound to the heart, and that heart hardly has enough energy to go on. And we weep. And we cry. And sometimes... Till there are no more tears. We wept ourselves dry. Why? If the loved one is in heaven, in glory, victory. The world will tell you why. Because deep down, you really know there is no heaven. You really don't believe it. Your grief is an expression, really, of your unbelief contrary to your words. We, as the world, at least are honest about it. Death is death, and that's the end of communication. And so we weep and we wail, but at least we aren't trying to deceive ourselves that there's something beyond this death as one turns to, to dust again. Have done with it and be honest with yourself. Deep down, you really know there is no heaven and there is no hope but you want to fool yourself and you want to put a good display on it and so you're not overwhelmed you talk about a heaven and really though he's dead she's dead really alive and someplace else but it's a mark then of unbelief deep down that is suppressed is that true no beloved that's not true. And that's underscored here in the passage. Because you have a man, Elisha, who saw his good friend taken to heaven bodily alive, vanishing, not cast aside to the earth, but vanishing into the heavenly and the spiritual. He knew heaven was as surely as he was standing on earth, and yet he feels ripped in half. And there's a, a grief, and he cries out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel, and the horsemen thereof. And what he has experienced, of course, is a sense of loss. The grief of a believer has to do with love, and the depth of the love, and the knowledge of the separation 
for the time until glory comes again. And to say farewell to one whom you love, and not only whom you love, but has something to add to your life in a spiritual way. A friend in Jesus, if you will, be it a child, be it a parent, be it a spouse, is a heart-rending thing. As far as I'm concerned, the grief of a believer goes deeper than the grief of an unbeliever. Weep and wail as they will, because our love is deeper, because we have a oneness in Christ Jesus, you say, and that one not brought us only companionship and so on, but even brought an aspect of Christ himself. And we will miss that sorely, especially when you think of a mother in the home. And so, beloved, with Elisha, and it comes to expression when he says, my father, my father, note the word, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. He has suffered a loss of one who was so important to his life, who meant so much to him in the time of fellowship and conversation brought to an end, and as a certain poet said, the tender grace of a day that is dead, that tender grace with that one will never come back to me again until, of course, the page is turned and glory comes and I enter glory as well. But until that, this tender grace of a day that is dead will never come back to me. And there's a grief and there is a sense of loss. And that was Elisha too. My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he feels ripped in half and the wound goes to his very heart as it were. And the Lord, beloved, does not rebuke us in our grief, in our sorrow, and these heartfelt cries, these cries from the heart. But even here, there is a word of warning and of caution. The grief may be great, and it's a grief and a memory we will carry to the end of days. I mentioned Brother Renoverlo. The year in which he died would have been would have been their 50th anniversary last year. And he marked that. And it was known that he marked that my love has been gone for 30 years. The 50th anniversary. And he wrote a poem, heart-wrenching, about the one who had been taken from him as he proceeded in life by faith. But the reminder, beloved, that Elijah picked up the mantle. He didn't simply retire from life and simply say, my grief is great, my loss is overwhelming, I have really nothing to live for anymore, I'm done with it, the Lord has dealt with me severely, and I'm going to retire from life and simply feed on my grief. That wasn't Elijah. Elisha, beloved, there was the mantle at his feet, remember? And he picks it up and does what? Does he head deeper into the wilderness and say, I'm retiring from life, I'm taking the mantle as a token of memory, and I will simply live apart and wait till the day I die as well? Oh, no. If that becomes the outcome of grief, the risen Lord will appear to us and say, like he did to a certain woman, Mary. Mary, you have no one to live for? You have nothing to live for? I am your Lord and Savior. You live for me, who's taking your loved one to glory and continue to minister to the body in the position in which you are. And that's Elisha, beloved. He picks up that mantle. He doesn't head deeper into the wilderness and find a juniper tree. He heads back to Jordan to cross over to do what? To minister to God's Israel if that's God's will. And that's why you have that cry as well. My father, my father, the horsemen of Israel and the, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. 
Elijah likened to a chariot and the horses that are harnessed to the chariot. Why? That's a militaristic picture, isn't it? Why did kings have horses and chariots in those days? For the sake of the defense of the people and the nation, if they were a king that was worthy of the name, to defend the people from the enemy, from the invasion of the enemy, and if not simply all-out assault upon the nation to destroy the nation, yet to send down marauding bands that would carry some of the people captive, like that little servant of name and the Syrian general, an Israelite, and carried into a captivity, remaining in the, in the faith, but still into a captivity. And a king had horsemen, he had military power, exactly for the defense of the nation and the citizens thereof. And he likens Elijah to that kind of a man of power, you see, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. Notice the chariot. It doesn't say just one of the chariots. The chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof, the horses that are harnessed to the chariot and soldiers as well. Because in the end, Elisha knows that Israel's safety is not in horses and chariots of King Ahab and all the rest, but in the end, the safety of Israel. God, Israel, has to do with what Elijah represented and who Elijah represents and what he carries, beloved, is the word of God. And there's Elisha's grief, you see. The chariot, the chariot of Israel, and the horsemen thereof. He's been taken, Lord. Who can replace the seemingly irreplaceable? Who will take care of the nation? Who will take care of the, of the family and do for the family, for the nation, for the church? What it seemed only one could do as he stood seemingly all alone. And he cries out, where is the Lord God of Elijah? With Elijah goes the word, Lord God. And now, who will bring the word that will defy and oppose the forces of evil in the kingdom like Ahab and Jezebel and the Baal worship? And who will bring the word to God's Israel, that remnant that was left, to keep them from being caught up in temptation and overcome by the power of sin and defend them from the evil one even in their own lives. Who will do that, Lord? The chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. Where is now the Lord God of Elijah? Who will replace the one who seems to be irreplaceable? But notice, the cry is not this. Where now is Elijah? He doesn't say where now is Elijah. He knows where Elijah is in heaven. He says where now is the Lord God of Elijah? Because in the end he knows it's not a matter of a man when all is said and done as though some man is irreplaceable in the church. And if the Apostle Paul is taken, Lord, how will the New Testament church possibly survive? And if Calvin is taken, well, how in the world is the reform movement going to survive? And if H. Hooks was taken, how is the Protestant church going to survive or anyone you want to name? Lord, does it need any particular man? He may use a particular man, but he doesn't need a man. He is the Lord God, and he may use whom he will use. And Elisha is crying out, Lord, is there one who can replace him? Who will bring the word? If it be myself, Lord, let it be myself for the sake of thy people whom you love and I love Lord God where now is Lord God of Elijah in the time of thy church's need the church is where we have membership as well show thyself as a God of thy word what word is that who is this Jehovah God we're told in some ways by the designation, the Lord God of Elijah. If you want to know something about this Jehovah God whom we so sorely need in the time of need, then you study the history of Elijah because it's through Elijah that God made himself known in various wonderful 
ways. And I want simply, beloved, to speak here of four different ways in which the Lord God Jehovah used Elijah as a revelation of himself. In the first place, the Lord God of Elijah as the sovereign God is the God who is the electing God. And let's understand something about election. It's not simply a doctrine by which you may designate yourself as a Calvin and demonstrate you are no Arminian. Election, beloved, is a precious doctrine because Jehovah God is the electing God. And election has to do with love. If someone were to ask you to set forth the truth, not just the doctrine, the truth of election, could you do that? Have you heard of the text, in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of children, and that from before the foundation of the world? Could you do that? We should be able to do that, you know, when we have conversation with others. Why are you a Reformed Calvinist? Not because of John Calvin, but because of the scriptures that he was used to set forth. Ephesians 1, verse 4 and 5. Chosen us before the foundation of the world, holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ unto himself. In other words, uh, people who are precious to him, don't you see? That's election. Precious. Whom he loved. And Elijah, Elisha knew that he had revealed himself to Elijah in that way on Mount Horeb. When Elijah himself was ready to resign the office and to give things up. And he sent him to Mount Horeb, if you recall, Mount, which is a mountain in Sinai, Mount Sinai. And then said what to Elijah? I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Why are there still 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal in northern Israel? Because I am an electing God, a God of grace and mercy of an irresistible sort, and whom I have are held in my hand, and they are precious to me, and I will preserve them. I will do that. And I may use this one, or I may use that one, but I will preserve my own in love and no one shall pluck them from my hand. That's the electing God represented by Elijah, you see. And that we must remember in the time of trial and testing and mercies that seem well disguised. I will take care of those even left behind. They are mine. And the one in glory shall wait. He also, she also is mine. That God with that love and that faithfulness, the God of Elijah, you see. But there's also this when it comes to the God of Elijah. He is a God of power. He's a God of love, whom his own are precious, whom he will preserve. But he's a God of power. When you think of Elijah you think of what? Well, you think of wind and tornado. You think of fire that comes from heaven on Mount Carmel, if you recall, with the sacrifice there. Baal hears, and Elijah simply swept them aside, and he calls fire down from heaven. The Lord sends that fire as he prays and consumes the sacrifice and the dust and the water as well. That God of power, you see, he's the same God who destroyed Two bands of 50 men, if you recall, under captains. That's 1 Kings chapter 1, if you read it. 2 Kings chapter 1, if you read it. Would silence him, you see. Silence his witness. He gives himself over to the third captain because he knew he was safe in the keeping of that third captain who was obviously a, evidently a believer. But the God of power, of wind and storm, if you re recall, and uh, lightning flash and the uh, fire from heaven. That's the God of Elijah. You see him, as it were, with the, with the whirlwind and so on. 
But the point is that God says, I will, in my love, have the power at your disposal. I will use that almighty power to defend you from the enemy and to keep you safe. You have nothing to fear in the storm winds or as the fires rage. I am with thee. I am Jehovah God, the God of Elijah. But what's also striking is that the God of Elijah is a God of amazing gentleness, tender mercies we call, and uh, patience with us. That was true of Elijah. Remember, he sat under the juniper tree. And when he sat under the juniper tree in despair, Jehovah God came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. But the children of Israel have forsaken the covenant, thrown down thine altar, slain thy people, and I, only I, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord sends him to, to, to Nebel. I should say, not Nebel, to Sinai. And speaks to him at Sinai, Mount Horeb. And he asks again, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah asks, answers again, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant. And in that answer, beloved, there is an implied criticism. I have been jealous. I have done my part, Lord. And yet there is seemingly no, no conversion. And there's no turning to the Lord God. And they're seeking the life of the prophet as though it's worth nothing. What have you done, Lord? That's the implication, you see. I've done my part. I preached the gospel, and it seems to have precious little effect upon Israel. I might as well resign and be done. It's an implied questioning of God taking care of his people, if you have any people left, Lord. And what does the Lord do? Little man, who are you to cry to me in such a way and to imply such? I give you the back of my hand, and I sweep you away. No. In his patience and in his gentleness... The Lord God hears him out and responds and says, Elijah, you don't see things properly. I have 7,000. I have kept my people and I have used you, whether you're aware of it or not. Now get your body back to the nation and preach the word. And you do what I call you to do. And I, as Jehovah, will do my part in saving my people for I am a faithful God. Touched with the feelings of our infirmities, beloved. Isn't that true of the one he gave us, Christ Jesus? His patience with his own disciples and their lack of understanding and complaints and whatnot. Touched with the feelings of our infirmities and ministering to us with a gentleness and a persistence. Thanks be to God. But one more incident from the life of Elijah. There is his love. There is his power. There is his gentle firmness in keeping us and listening and responding. But there's also the incident of the widow of Zarephath, isn't there? Early in Elijah's ministry, he visits a Gentile woman with her son. And then the little boy dies. And the widow Zarephath is overcome and sees it as a token of God's wrath. And says, this is why you have come, servant of the Lord, to bring my past, my paganism to remembry, and now memory, and now I am to pay for that. Is that what this is, a punishment for my sins? And Elijah is bewildered himself. And the Lord uses him to raise that little boy and put him back in her arms. This is the proof. Thou art forgiven. And she says, now I know the Lord is not holding 
my sins, my paganism against me, but he is Jehovah God. And every morning, beloved, she went to the cupboard, didn't she? And there was the cruise of oil and the container of flour, the cupboard of grace, if you will, whereby he sustains her and that little one day by day. He is, beloved, a God of his word, is he not? who provides us according to our need in gospel word and provision of life. This is the Lord God of Elijah, to whom we may commit ourselves, you see, in trust, even when his mercies seem to be well disguised. So he calls at the brook, where is the Lord God of Elijah, show thyself, is what he is saying. Show thyself as the Lord God of promise and of faithfulness and of power and of love. Did he? Has he? Does he? Did he? Has he? Does he? Read the passage. Did he? He did, didn't he? At the feet of Elisha is the mantle of Elijah. Elijah had asked him, is there anything of me that you request? And Elisha in his wisdom says, Lord God, uh, Elijah, I desire the double portion of thy spirit, not to be twice the man you are, but the inheritance of a firstborn, as though I am your son. And you have the spirit of the Lord God, which is the spirit of the word and understanding. Grant to me that spirit of the word and understanding. And Elijah said, that's up to the Lord God, whom he will use to replace me. It may be you, I don't know, see if the Lord's mantle. And there it is on the ground. And he knows that the Lord has left him with the word, you see, the words of Elijah to speak. He goes to the, to the river, to Jordan, and now he stands before the Jordan River which in its own way is a symbol of the power of, of death. But he says, I have the word, as it were, but the word by itself is not enough. Do I have the spirit of Elijah with its power? Because the word in itself will not save. Unbelievers can read the word. It doesn't save them. It simply hardens them. Lord, I have the word. Will I have the Holy Spirit to work that word for the salvation of those to whom I minister? Where is he now? Art thou there, Lord? with thy spirit, and he slaps the water. And the water ceases running, and the bed goes dry, and he crosses over, and he now knows he has not only the words the Lord will give him as a prophet, but the spirit will work in the interest of Israel, who is to be preserved and saved as well. The Lord was faithful, beloved, as he sent Elisha to replace Elijah and to keep his people in the way of salvation, in the way of power and of love and of uh, faithfulness. He did. Has he? To the Israel that follows? That's where Christ comes in, doesn't it? Not only did he in the day of Elisha, he has for the church of all ages in Christ Jesus, his son, who of course is represented, symbolized by the man whose name is Elisha, God is salvation. I said that in, its, in his outward spectacular ascension, it overmatched even that of Christ Jesus, Elijah, as he went with the, with the roar, with, with the chariot, and with the, with the horses that were hitched to, to that chariot. He went with more outward splendor, but love, he did not go with more power. Elijah was carried into heaven. Christ Jesus ascended by his own power. He simply defied gravity. Even the law of gravity was under his control and did not keep him on the earth, but was even used to lift him from the earth. He went of his own will, of his own power, unlike Elijah, who had to be carried into heaven. That's Christ Jesus. But he ascends, you say. What good is Christ Jesus in heaven? The disciples asked that. He's in heaven. We're here. He's there. Of what help is he while he's in heaven? You know the answer. 
from heaven, I will send you the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And you will be able to take that word, this mantle of Elijah, as it were, that you have, that we have in our homes, the mantle of Elijah, the word of God, telling us who God is and his promises and our calling. And that Holy Spirit will open this book to you for your comfort, your instruction, your direction, and your encouragement, you see. Jehovah, who is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is in heaven. But as he said, I am always with you. Doubt it not. I am assuredly with you, as Elisha was with Israel in that day long ago. He did, he has, does he? Yes, beloved, he still does. He is still faithful to his word. I can say that having dealt with that Van Overloop family, Jim Van Overloop's family after the mother was taken, where his children are in the church these days, one of whom is my son-in-law, the Lord kept a family, beloved, without a mother, by the labor of a father, by the labor of a congregation, by the bringing of the word, by his own power, according to his own love. But not just one family. In Israel, there were 7,000 who had bowed the knee. There were thousands of families. The Lord kept those families as well and saved them even in generations. But not only of one denomination. There was another body of believers, you know, to the south of Judah and Jerusalem who had their families too, numbering even more than those that were in northern, northern Israel. The Lord, beloved, has his own in the nations of the earth, represented by that widow of Zarephath and her little boy. The church universal. That's Jehovah God. He knows how to keep his own, to call his own to glory in his own time. And then his mercy to preserve those left behind until the time comes when he calls us home as well. And then sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And then there won't be the songs by Babel streams we sat and wept, but it will indeed be the hallelujah chorus and even the words of Psalter numbers that speak of going forth in his service and strong in his might to conquer all evil and stand for the right. Amen. Father who art in heaven, for thy word we give thee thanks for the spirit, not simply of Elijah, but of our Lord Jesus Christ. May he dwell with us, give comfort and encouragement, and we live by faith and continue ourselves to be of service to the body of Christ till Christ is pleased to take us home. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>